Well, welcome back, I suppose, to another Cardinals Off Day podcast. Here we are. I am Ben Godar. With me, as always, is my good friend, Ben Humphrey. And as I think we said once before this offseason, you know, practice self-care. It is an off day, uh, but you are not required to think about the St. Louis Cardinals today. So if you would rather be touching grass or doing something else, feel free to do that. But uh, that said, we are grateful for those of you that have chosen to uh, to join us today, and we will be talking about the team. So, Ben, now that I have uh, given that uh, that uh, brief uh, trigger warning, I guess maybe we'll call it. Uh, how are you doing? Uh, you know, I'm I'm doing pretty well, uh, <laughs> except for how the St. Louis Cardinals are doing. But uh, if your mood is too heavily influenced by how the St. Louis Cardinals are doing, uh, I encourage you maybe to just take a step back, uh, get get some <laughs> additional interest to help uh, water down your free time so it's not quite so toxic as the St. Louis Cardinals have made it of late. Yes, yes. Uh, this is uh, certainly something that we we all turn to for uh, for recreation uh, and may not be bringing as much joy into our lives lately as we would like it to. But, uh, uh, you know, we can always uh, focus on other aspects of the game uh, and uh, hopefully still find some some joy in it. Uh, and and we'll, we'll focus on uh, on certain aspects of the team here today. Uh, and, uh, yeah, well, well, let's just dive in, Ben. So, uh, first off, I guess, as always, uh, gosh, what have we, what have we learned? Um, I have, uh, relearned an old lesson that, uh, we have, we seem to talk about, uh, every year and, you know, April can be misleading, uh, whether a player has a really great start or a really bad start, uh, or even just more of a, a middling start, it can mislead you as to the quality of season overall that player has had. Um, and I have been reminded of that because even though the Cardinals overall uh, have not been having success, and there are certainly uh, some players who have continued to struggle uh, as they did early in the year. Um, there are others who have come out and shown that you, you know, you cannot write a player off because they have a bad start. Uh, one of those is Miles Michaelis uh, in March and April. Uh, he had some pretty ugly numbers. He was giving up. Uh, pretty hard contact. Uh, opposing batters posted a 393 weighted on base average uh, against him, which is very good. Uh, weighted on base average is on the on base percentage scale. So like 400 is elite. So 393 of a weighted on base average, which takes everything into account, uh, is very good. And uh, not surprisingly, if you're giving up that type of quality contact, he had a 5.97 ERA in March and April. And naturally then, uh, in May, and I'm just going to use May because there's only five innings in June to his name so far. But in May, Miles Michaelis has a one eight, had a 1.89 ERA. Opponents posted a 2.42 weighted on base average against him, which is like Tony Cruz uh, 
you know, kind of in the Tony <laughs> Cruz zone there a little bit, uh, or, or maybe Gary Bennett. I'm not sure. Um, and then, you pick, know, pick even a if, Yachty backup. Yes. Pick, pick a backup catcher. Uh, and uh, his fielding independent stats have gotten much better as well. Uh, his fielding independent pitching was 496 in March and April. Uh, his XFIP, which normalizes home run rate to the league average, and fielding independent pitching is based on strikeouts, walks, and home runs allowed. Uh, as his XFIP, which has a league average home run rate, uh, was 4.39. In May, it was three. Uh, his FIP was 3.07. Uh, and his XFIP was 3.89. And not surprisingly, uh, when you look at Miles, Mike, g- given, you know, kind of those two very different months, uh, Miles Michaelis's overall numbers look about like what you would expect Miles Michaelis's overall numbers to look like uh, in a season. And, uh, and the same is true of Jordan Hicks. Uh, early on, he was horrible. Uh, and since then, he has gotten a lot better. Uh, in March and April, he had a 4.70 FIP uh, and a 3.38 XFIP, which of course suggests some unlucky home run luck. And then in May, his FIP was 3.02 and his XFIP was 3.58. And, you know, not terribly surprisingly, uh, surprised to see that his ERA uh, of 6.35 in March and April f- was only 2.38 in May, and he has not given up a run in June yet. And so I think both of these pitchers, um, you know, I know I found myself asking the question, gee, are these guys done? Um, but they have both bounced back and have looked a lot more like the pitchers they have been throughout their career. Uh, if you get away from their bad start. And so uh, I think we need to keep that in mind as we move forward through the rest of the season. Maybe the team will have the same turnaround over the final uh, two thirds of the season, Ben, we can keep our fingers crossed. Well, we can certainly hope so. And I I need to give you credit. You, I was, uh, I I was pretty much checking out on Jordan Hicks there at the, uh, the nadir of his uh, April luck. And uh, you, you kept the faith and you have certainly been uh, proven right on that. Uh, You know, Ben, I have learned that uh, correlation is not causation. Um, As we sit here today, the uh, uh, coming into, and again, the Cardinals are, are, are playing as we record this so uh it'll be different as folks look at this but as we sit here right now the cardinals have exactly a zero run differential so they have given up as many runs um, as they've scored um which would of course correlate to uh, a 500 record and we know that there's a very strong correlation between uh run differential and record um uh but the cardinals as we also know do not have a 500 record. The Cardinals have a <laughs> very, very below 500 record. Um, and that's just the way it goes. If you were to simulate these first however many games uh, 10,000 times, um, it, the, you would, uh, the, you know, the average would very, very much be a 500 uh, team. We happen to be in one of those simulations, Ben, that is at the very extreme end of those results. 
And that's just the way it goes sometimes. So, um, uh, but uh, this is the reality that we are in, Ben. This is the particular simulation that, that you and I and the rest of our listeners are in. And so that's the reality is that night after night, we're watching a team that is, that is losing these games. So, um, uh, and I think the challenge of course is for the organization, you know, when they do look at those underlying realities and numbers and stuff, I, I, they're not wrong when they say that, yeah, a lot of those underlying things are true that, yeah, this is by no means a, a great team and maybe not even necessarily a, a good team, but it's, it's certainly not a terrible team, right? It may be just an average team, um, but it's not a terrible team. Um, despite the fact that that's the record that they have but we're all watching the results of a terrible team we're seeing the you know the 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 winning record of a terrible team and it's it's very hard uh and dispiriting to watch so um you know that's what we're seeing night after night and that's just the way it goes sometimes so um anyway i've just been you know reminded that's the way it goes and and just sometimes you, you have to just sort of separate out that you know maybe the underlying uh you, you know uh data is pointing in this direction the results are paying and pointing in another direction um and then what does that tell you about maybe what the team should do going forward uh you know, it's one thing for the folks that run the team and how they make their decisions. It's another thing for just us and our our emotions and and what we've what we've seen and how we describe uh, what we've all experienced so far. So, um, so that's what we've all learned, Ben. Um, shall we dive into our first main topic, which is looking at at those kind of what we've actually seen so far and talking about what um, what those real life numbers have been and how that. Uh, diverges from the the zips projections from some of those players. Yeah, I, you know, just kind of looking at the tenor overall, I thought it might be interesting to figure out who is to blame. No, I, I'm I'm joking. Um, <laughs> but but uh, that is kind of this exercise of, you know, what are the what are the bright spots relative to kind of that. Uh, middle projection point and what are the down spots and every year every team has this happen right there are players who underperform players who overperform and players who are right about where you thought they would be and you know with the cardinals run differential they're probably underperforming what we thought they would be just by run differential needless to say then that their record is way below what we thought it would be. And so uh, I thought it might be interesting uh, to take a look at uh, those uh, Zips projections and compare them uh, to player performance so far this year. Uh, and, you know, who are some of the overperformers? Who are some of the uh, underperformers? And I think one of the per, one of the players who is probably one of the larger underperformers just even in the game of baseball this year in terms of overall production is Nolan Arenado. Of course, my number one overall pick in the annual preseason wins above replacement draft, Ben. It, it's looking good for me as we sit here today. Looking um, good for me. 
And so before the season, Zips projected Arenado to have a 349 weighted on base average and to post a 5.3 wins above replacement season, which for a projection system over five wins is is very high, which yeah. suggests uh, the projection for uh, Arenado was a confident one. That That means that half of his projections would have been better than this or about half actually not not quite half but like mm-hmm. uh and so what has he done this year uh through play on june 6 2023 uh, he had a 325 weighted on base average which is you know a solid 24 points uh below his projection and he had 0.7 wins above replacement which would put him on pace to be about a two win player uh which needless to say that's a minus three over over three wins above replacement beneath his projection which is which is very bad and so when you when you have you know sort of an mv2 roster construction uh, with him and Goldschmidt, and he's not performing, you know that that puts the team in an awkward place because they're also hitting him towards the top of the lineup. So he's getting a lot of plate appearances, and the production just isn't there. So when the guys like Lars Newtbar and Paul Goldschmidt are getting on base, they aren't driving him in or driving those guys in. And so that's that's been a big problem for the Cardinals so far this year is Nolan Arenado as an underperformer. Yeah, and and I think um, you know the other guy just looking at this that jumps out, of course, uh, as an underperformer to me is is Wilson Contreras. Um, uh, he uh, you know projected for a three point three four wins uh, or a weighted on base currently at two point nine eight uh, and a, a three point one wins above replacement currently at a zero point six. Um, uh, again, somebody jumping out at me is just, you know, far, far below, uh, you know, where they projected him, him at, um, I, I, those to me are probably the two, um, you know, most glaring. And again, both of those guys, you know, two that were projected to be just kind of, you know, bona fide everyday starters, one of whom, <laughs> you know, within a month, they, they sort of removed that uh, bona fide everyday starter uh, role from at least in the position they, uh, you know, they kind of planned uh, to have them for um, anybody else, Ben, who kind of jumped out to you in the, 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 the underperforming uh, mold on the position player side. Uh, I'm going to cheat and I'm going to do a catch all. Uh, to round this out, Ben, yeah. and I'm going to say the outfield. Yes. Uh, and just excluding Lars Newtbar, who, even though he has been injured, yes. uh, is comfortably on a pace to outperform his 2.1 wins above replacement projection and 330 weighted on base average. He currently has a 343 weighted on base average and 1.3 wins above replacement. So his pace, even though he has missed time, due to injury twice now um his pace uh is to be better than what uh the projections say he would be uh setting him aside um we have uh dylan carlson projected for 2.5 wins above replacement he's at minus uh, 0.1 oh tyler o'neill projected for 2.2 on pace for or currently has minus 0.3 
Uh, Burleson projected for 2.2, currently at minus 0.5. And Walker projected for 1.2, currently at minus 0.4. I mean, that's a whole lot of negative overall projection yeah. Uh, that's on the bases. It's defense and offense. And it would be difficult to describe the outfield as anything other than a disappointment, yeah. um, except when the uh, utility infielders are playing in the outfield. Um, <laughs> that's, yeah. That's and, and about the only bright spot. And the outfield is, is just it's very complicated because there's it's such a mixture of injury and underperformance and who's playing where and it's yeah it's it's tough to sort out there for sure um but obviously we do have some uh you know some overperformance on the team as well you mentioned Lars Newtbar um Nolan Gorman of course um uh dramatically overperforming his projection um uh, projected for 2.1 wins above replacement already at 1.6 um uh Paul DeYoung, similarly, 2.4 wins above replacement projection, um, currently at 1.1. Anybody else, Ben, on the uh, overprojection? Well, I think, uh, number one, the DeYoung one is even more impressive because he missed time. He was injured. You know, so he has not been able. Now, who's to say if he would continue hitting, you know, that counterfactual can cut both ways right but like the fact that he has posted 1.1 wins in limited time is really impressive the the person who uh i think is a pretty fascinating overperformer is goldschmidt and we yeah. talked about a yeah. little bit about this uh in the before the season started how you know he is the reigning most valuable player but if you looked at his you know, the quality of his contact and his walks, you know, he, he and his age and his age. Right. So you would expect him to kind of decline a little bit. And when you take those things together, you know, we kind of said, we think he'll still be good, but don't be surprised if he's just not great. Well, Paul Goldschmidt must have had his ears burning uh, and took offense because he has improved his quality of contact. He has improved uh, his weighted on base average. So right now he's he's outpacing his projection by 22 points uh, at the bat, and you know he is on pace to be, you know, one and a half two wins above his 4.3 uh, zips WAR projection, which is pretty incredible because that's that's a high number. And so he's having a really great year, um, and you know, in typical Goldschmidt fashion, even though he's the reigning MVP it feels like maybe just how good he has been has been a little under the radar just because the team has been so not good. Yeah. I mean, a six, a six war season out of Goldschmidt, that's, that's probably not another MVP award, but that's like in the MVP conversation again. I mean, that's, that's very, very high level. The other one, just to mention before we get into the pitchers, we noted in the preseason, Zips was very low on Brendan Donovan. You know, they really kind of saw him as a, you know, illusory. Uh, they had, a, you know, 315 weighted on base projection for him was pretty low. Um, he's he's well overperformed that and is, you know, kind of maintaining a lot of the value that he had last year and, um, you know, looks looks on pace to, um, you know, uh, overperform their projection and maintain the kind of value he had last year. Uh, ben, what are you what are you seeing on the starting pitching side? 
Well, one of the things that was uh, most interesting to me, and it actually challenged where my own mindset was uh, before I looked at these numbers, because I think like a lot of people were like, oh, Jordan Montgomery is the best pitcher on this team. You know, it's good when he starts. And uh, Zip certainly thought that in the preseason. It uh, projected him to post a 3.38 ERA, a 3.60 FIP, and to post three wins above replacement, which as a projection for a pitcher is, is a very strong number. Um, and this year, uh, through play on June 6th, uh, Montgomery has a 4.23 ERA, 4.48 FIP, and has 1.1 uh, wins above replacement. So he's uh, underperforming what Zips projected him for. And it's really been due to a downfall in performance since he got off to that good start. So uh, it's uh, a little surprising to me. He's, he's coming in a little uh, under where they projected him to be and that has been particularly painful for the cardinals who i think were counting on him to kind of be uh, a, a better more consistent pitcher throughout the year to help bolster that rotation yeah well and i think the you know we all look at this pitching staff and say well this starting pitching staff is terrible right and we're not wrong but the thing is zips look at this pitching staff before the season and said, this pitching staff is terrible and zips or, and, 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 and the numbers look at this pitching staff now and say, this pitching staff is terrible. And, and the numbers haven't really moved that much, you know? So there's not as much change here as what I kind of see here, Ben, you know, I mean, the preseason, um, you know, zips projections, Montgomery and Mats were the only pitchers that, uh, you know, zips projected uh, with a FIP under four. Right. So and then um, now uh, Michaelis is the only pitcher with a FIP under four. Right. So right. like the numbers just aren't really, um, you know, so, yeah, some of these guys and Montgomery's the, the most notable one who's really probably performing the most significantly worse, at least than where Zips projected him to be. But realistically, the numbers aren't that much worse. And it's just when you look at where these guys were projected to be, it's like, how can you really point the finger too much here? When you look at, you know, Adam Wainwright was projected to have a 4.45 FIP, right? So, I mean, how can you say, well, geez, uh, you know, this is what's letting the team down as a guy that was projected to have a 4.45 FIP, right? Nobody really projected this to be, you know, somebody who was that great. So I just don't see, you know, there, there's just, there's not much surprise in what's kind of happened here on the pitching side. And I think Ben, that was one of the most interesting things to me about this whole exercise overall is even on the hitting side. I mean, yeah, there's definitely the outfield is, 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 is pretty bad. You know, Arenado definitely underperforming, but there's a number of guys that are, you know, kind of overperforming too. So on kind of an individual player level, when I look at this, you know, again, I don't see like this kind of catastrophic underperformance that I think you might, uh, that I would expect that I would for a team that's has the worst record in the National League. 
Yeah, no, it's, and this is, you know, with the pitching staff, this is something that we uh, on this podcast have harped on for two, uh, two years now, right? More than two years where it's, they need more elite innings. And, and this is, this, is the scenario that has played out is they don't have a stopper they don't have elite innings anywhere on this roster now jack flaherty here and there can give you an elite start but so can miles michaelis so can jordan montgomery i'm not saying that they don't have guys who on a given night can't go out and be elite i'm saying they don't have a pitcher who's going to go out this season and be elite for 26 starts right like it's that top tier talent that they don't have they they really have a whole bunch of like fourth and fifth level guys right now yeah you know you could you could argue michaelis is probably like a three but they have middle and bottom half pitchers not top half of the rotation well Um, and that's a problem well, and that's where I kind of wanted to segue into just a, a brief sort of secondary topic, and that's expanding this kind of talking about pitching into this idea of run prevention. And, and this is something we've talked about before, and really in particular talking about uh, defense, um, because I think, you know, this this model that they have been rolling out for the last several years um, using these pitch to contact pitchers. It's been intentionally using these number four, number five pitchers, but it has always been with an elite defense. And we've looked back over these last several years before, and they have consistently had a top five defense. Um, and, you know, last week, I kind of, uh, or, or on our last show, you know, we looked and, and at the time, uh, you know, this team had a, a number five um, uh, offense in the league, a number 15 pitching staff, right? Middle of the road pitching staff. And that felt right about where they probably projected to be in terms of just hitting and just pitching. But as of right now, this team ranks 23rd in outs above average. And a a 23rd ranked defense absolutely will not cut it with that middle of the road pitching. And I think, you know, if we were to kind of point a finger into where they're falling apart in that run prevention model, that's really where it's where it's happening. and and we talked a little at the beginning about the, the the outfield in particular. I think that's a big place where it's uh, you know where it's happening. Um, you know, and and we we've kind of seen those dominoes fall out there. You had O'Neill, of course, uh, you know, has been injured and gone since um, you know what the beginning of May. Uh, Carlson, you know, and then even Newt Bar is gone. I mean, at this point, there are essentially no real outfielders, you know, even out there in the outfield on, on certain nights. Right. Um, you know, you've got, uh, you know, uh, uh, Edmund and center, right. You've got Donovan, uh, you know, you got two infielders out there and then you've got Jordan Walker out there. You literally have three infielders, uh, playing the outfield, um, sometimes now. And I just think there are so many balls falling out there. There's just, uh, you know, I think that's, you know, having a major impact, this season, they also, um, you know, put uh, Gorman at second base. I think Gorman's made big strides there, but, you know, that's, uh, you know, there's, there's more balls getting through there. Obviously, we've talked in the team, of course, talked about the, you know, the move to Contreras um, at catcher. We know that's, um, you know, uh, a step kind of defensively. There were just a number of choices they made, um, basically, uh, 
looking to add offense. Um, uh, but th they didn't do that in doing that. They didn't then improve that pitching at all. So they, they, um, they didn't do anything else to shift that run prevention model that they had at all. And, and as you've brought up before, Ben, we know that the ball has continued to be tinkered with to, um, you know, essentially uh, lead to more runs. We know that the, the rule changes that happened this season between the shift between the bigger bases, very, very small changes, but every single one of these things is basically making run prevention more difficult. And the team has just done less and less and less um, to, you know, to do that. And, and, and also they are just on an absolute island trying to um, roll out this, this run prevention model with this pitch to contact uh, number four, number five starter model. And again, and not at this point, not even with a, a solid defense. So it's just, to me, the fact that it's just turned into Swiss cheese and, and, you know, balls are getting through and runs are coming through. It, it's kind of no wonder. So that is the one aspect of this team. I, I mean, obviously, again, I think a lot of this right now is, is kind of some bad luck. And I think the record is not totally reflective of the true talent of this team. But when I look here for where is there a, a, a true weakness of this team, that's, that's the big area where I do see that I think the construction of this team is just not, not adequate. Yeah. And, you know, to your point and also related to what we were talking about, you know, with, with Nolan Arenado uh, in particular uh, sticks out to me and his low wins above replacement had me digging into the uh, advanced metrics on fielding and by stout stat cast outs, above average he's minus two this year by defensive runs saved he's minus one and this is over a third of the way into the season and last year for comparison in outs above average he was a plus 14 defensive runs saved he was a plus 19. i you know he's been he's gone from a a clear elite defensive season to uh not being very good and at tommy edmund's middle infield positions he's he's uh fallen off as well at second base and shortstop at second base he's minus one outs above average minus two defensive runs saved at shortstop he's at zero outs above average minus one defensive runs saved his positive defensive value has come from large from third base in the outfield <laughs> like it's wild to me you know i don't know how how much he prepared to play in the outfield this year but i would think most of his reps were on the infield and it's just wild to me that he's helped the team more defensively in the outfield than he has on the infield especially with folks you know talking about how he was like you know the greatest defensive shortstop in the league um, after last season. And I think all this shows that fielding is more volatile than we think it is. Um, and, and a player's performance uh, in that way can ebb and flow. And that makes the front office's approach a little bit more fraught, where if you're going to have pitch to contact guys, you have to be ready for even good defenders like Edmund or great defenders like Nolan Arenado to not be 
good, you know, for a third of the season or 40% of the season, or maybe even the whole season. And yeah. uh, it'll be interesting to see if they can, they can improve the fielding uh, as the season progresses. Cause they, with the way they have constructed this roster, they, they have to do that to climb out of this hole they've dug themselves. Yeah. And, and, you know, and I don't think we're going to really d- even dive into this, but you know, you and I have noticed the, you know, the, the base running metric, they're, they're, they're much lower in the base running metrics this season as well. And, and I think we have some questions about that as well. And and I don't know, I, I kind of wonder, is it, are there even just some coaching things going on with 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 the positioning on you know the the defensive positioning with the new shift rules with how they're base running you know even just with the new kind of with the bases it just it just seems like there's just some oddities with players who used to be good in both of these things just suddenly not not performing well it it just there's just a lot of oddities in terms of uh, across the team and especially against the backdrop of Ali Marmal trashing Tyler O'Neill in the media and saying, we're going to be smart and relentless, like yeah. just total meathead nonsense, right? Like yeah. calling this guy out. And it's like, well, have you benched anyone else, Ollie? Yeah. Have you called anyone else out for not being smart and relentless on the base paths? Because you've got some guys who have really fallen off uh, running the bases yeah. And and if you were hoping to make an example out of Tyler O'Neill to make everyone else, you know, see how things need to be, it obviously failed. Yeah. And so it's really interesting to me because Marmal just went and we talked about this on a past episode. I don't want to rehash it, but he seemed to go really over the top on O'Neill, but then the whole team it have, has had right. base running that's pretty lackluster uh, yeah. and it's certainly not at the level he articulated as the standard for the St. Louis Cardinals in the year 2023, but he hasn't talked about it. He hasn't thrown anyone else under the bus. He does not appear to have benched anyone else. It's just something, if it's being addressed at all, apparently not very uh, firmly and they sure. just continue to be middling. Sure. And, and it's certainly, it's, it's very understandable this season with some of those, some of the, you know, the, certainly the shift change and just the, the, the change to the base size and just some of what, and the throwing over and some of that. I mean, there were some very significant changes this year that I think strategically and coaching wise, you know, I I can see teams having to make some adjustments there and everybody kind of taking some time to get their footing and kind of figuring that out. But just the way the Cardinals operate and with their insistence on not paying for, you know, strikeout pitching and the advantage that 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 gives you. And we've talked about this. They need every one of those little edges. And just the fact that they have not been able to capitalize on those edges in terms of defense, in terms of base running, in terms of the kind of, you know, catcher, you know, intangible plays. It just seems like that's that's one of those things that's really, really showing up. Um, in their record. So if they continue to not get those little edges, Ben, and their record stays where it's at, I think we do want to maybe allow ourselves today something that questioners have been asking us for a few weeks now. What what would a sell-off look like? And and Mo, of course, has been asked this repeatedly. And, and um, while he continues to kind of dodge this, you know, they can't dodge this forever. And we are, you know, a week into June now. And it's it's not unreasonable. Uh, there is a point, of course, if they stay at the bottom of the 
you know, National League, it's 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 certainly possible that they might do something like a sell-off. So let's say they were to get to, you know, the all-star break and, and they were to be, you know, at the bottom of the division. What 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 do you think uh, a, a Cardinals uh, team might do if they were to decide we are realistically out of playoff contention? It's a great question because we know for a fact that ownership prides itself on Hall of Famers playing for the St. Louis Cardinals, right? Mm-hmm. And there's a pretty good argument that the last two seasons uh, with the MVP and the season he's putting together so far this year, hopefully uh, he doesn't see his production fall off a cliff or get injured, knock on wood. But Paul Goldschmidt looks like he is playing himself into the hall of fame, right? Mm -hmm. Like this year, And if he has another very good year next year, I think he's probably a Hall of Famer. And if Mm -hmm. he hangs around and has a few more good years after that, not even necessarily great, but just good to drive up some of those counting stats, you know, I I think he's very much in the Hall of Fame conversation. So what do the St. Louis Cardinals do with players like that, Ben? They they don't trade them. (laughs) Mm -hmm. They sign them to like, three-year extensions and then uh you know have them ride the bench for the last two years because they're hitting terribly um but it it, in all seriousness though they goldschmidt if we sat here today and took records out of it he's an extension candidate with the way the cardinals operate after this year right yes but but you have nolan gorman hitting Mm -hmm. the way that he is hitting right Mm-hmm. And you have you have Burleson, you have Walker, you have multiple guys that sure look like they could be a first baseman. Yes. In at some point in time, right? Yes. And so you have a guy who's an MVP caliber player. You need pitching because you only have two under contract next year. And, and Ben, starters. Ben, and they, Steven, they not. And, and let me just interrupt, Ben. They not only look like they could be a first baseman, they look like they could be a cost-controlled first baseman for five or six years, which is also something <laughs> that Bill DeWitt loves. I'm just going to throw that out there. And they also they also relieve the log jam, right? Like, yes. you know, the second base log jam is relieved. The corner outfield log jam would be relieved a little bit, right? The DH yes. yep. is relieved a little bit. And so... Um, you know, Paul Goldschmidt is an MVP caliber player. He, he is an immediate impact player in a pennant race. And if, if you're in a pennant race and you want to win a world series, he's, he's going to be on your team next year too. Right. Mm -hmm. And so if you're the Cardinals, you need, you need young cost controlled pitching who who can strike people out because you won't pay for it on the free agent market and you need it next year. So you need them pretty close to the majors because you have two starters under contract and uh, one of them is Steven Matz who isn't even really a starter anymore. And so to me, Paul Goldschmidt is your, your best chip to strengthen the starting rotation, you know, with some young cost controlled arms 
uh, or at least with one young cost-controlled starter and maybe some relievers or something like that to go with. And then it also has the added benefit of, oh, hey, you know, Nolan Gorman, you should probably start, uh, you know, working on your scoops because mm -hmm. you're going to be getting some innings at first base next year, or you are our first baseman, um, as the case may be. And so, you know, I know he has a good arm and all that, but like, or Walker, who has been terrible in the outfield defensively, yeah. you know, maybe he's your first baseman. He's a big target, you know? And so like you, you look at that and it just makes so much sense on paper um, that it's really hard to just wave away as like, Oh, the Cardinals don't trade players like Paul Goldschmidt. And it's like, well, yeah, you don't, but you also haven't been in this position in almost 20 years. So maybe you need to start acting a little bit like a Cleveland or a Tampa and try and restock on the fly, because if you can get some young elite arms, they're going to strengthen a weakness for you. And they're going to free up playing time and at bats for some of your young cost controlled players who are the future of the club. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think if, if they're going to, um, you know, if they're going to rebuild, um, Goldschmidt is the big, the biggest chip, right? He's the biggest chip that they could potentially move. And, um, you know, uh, he's, uh, you know, of the guys who aren't free agents at the end of this season, they, he, um, they have one more season of him. So they're, they're, they'd be giving up to, uh, 2024. So, um, you know, they're, they're kind of giving up uh, one additional season. Right. So, uh, you know, again, the, the Cardinals are never going to tank, right. You know, they're not going to trade Nolan Arenado, um, you know, who they have, uh, through 2027, right? They're not going to, you know, do something like that, but they might, uh, you know, I think giving away two seasons of Paul Goldschmidt, one of which is, is, uh, would be, a, uh, you know, uh, would be gone already at that point. I think that's within the realm of possibility. I agree. Um, so other guys that I look at here, Ben, that I think could be, um, you know, pieces that they would look to move, um, you know, and some of these are obvious, of course, um, you know, Jordan Montgomery, of course, free agent at the end of the season, certainly somebody they would move. Um, uh, Tyler O'Neill, I think, um, pretty obvious at this point, <laughs> you know, is um, somebody that they would be um, looking to move. Uh, Paul DeYoung becomes pretty interesting. Um, uh, you know, uh, uh, someone who is uh, uh potentially a free agent at the end of the season, um, but actually has uh, two club options um, following this season. And for as much as those were a punchline coming into this season, the way he's playing now, those actually could be uh, an enticement to a team to take to take him. Yeah. It's a 12.5 uh, 12 million next season and 15 million the following season. And if he keeps playing the way he's playing right now, you know, that's interesting for a team and especially, you know, a team loves a club option because that's, you know, they, they take it if they want it and they cut them loose if they don't. Um, so, so I think he potentially um, becomes attractive and has more, you know, uh, more value to bring something back. Um, you know, the other, the other uh, guys, I think if they're truly looking to 
um, rebuild, um, I think you always dump relievers. Okay. You know, Hicks is a free agent, so you definitely trade Hicks. Um, yeah, and, and, and for I sure. think, and I think you also get, you also trade Gallegos and Helsley. Now those guys do, they do have multiple years of control for them, but as, as you know, Ben, and as I always say, relievers are like cattle, even very good relievers like Gallegos and Helsley. And there's no reason to hold on to relief pitchers like that. And especially at the trade deadline, that's when valuable relievers like that, you can actually get some premium value for. So you trade them, you, you send that, um, you know, uh, fancy package for Helsley, you, you ship that away to, to whatever team wants to take him. Um, you, you know, you, you trade all of those players we just mentioned for, um, some pitchers who can act, some starting pitchers who can actually strike guys out. And frankly, this team would roll into next season. I think probably the favorites to win the national league central, right? <laughs> I think they could really very easily put themselves in position to do that because you would roll, you would roll in there with, um, you know, as you mentioned with, you know, probably, uh, you know, a Jordan Walker or a Nolan Arenado moving into first base, uh, you know, in place of Paul Goldschmidt, you've, you know, you've got Mason Wynn in the, uh, you know, in the wings ready to kind of step into Paul DeYoung's shoes there, which is really kind of what the team wants to see happen there anyway. Um, you know, reliever churn is going to happen anyway. So you, you know, you, you've got some, some young arms or somebody you bring in free agency to sort of restock your bullpen. And then you, whoever you've acquired through trade, you've, you've, uh, you know, you've presumably upgraded your starting pitching. I mean, that, that sounds like a better team to me than what you have the, this year. Anyway, the, the other thing that moving Goldschmidt does is it frees up about $30 million to go yes. sign a pitcher or yes. two. Yes. And so, you know, that gives you flexibility to address your definitive weak spot, which mm -hmm. is your rotation. So you're you're getting potential uh, upgrades via trade, but then you're also freeing up money so you can go sign someone uh, mm -hmm. uh, that would also be an upgrade. And yeah. so. I mean, it just makes so much sense on so many levels. I think that uh, we have just talked to me uh, into the idea of trading Paul Goldschmidt this year. I mean, it's, I agree. I think what's, a, I mean, it, it would be disappointing in that, you know, he is a, he's a great player. It's a lot of fun watching him as a Cardinal. So I, I wouldn't say that I, I hope that it happens, but as, you know, as rebuilds go, the Cardinals are in such a strong position because as we just said, you know, they, it's very easy to imagine a scenario where they do all of these moves we just talked about, including Paul Goldschmidt, and they're in a, a, an even stronger position next year and even division favorites next year. Most teams, when they, they do a rebuild like this, you're, you're talking multiple years until they're really contending again, right? Um, and so, you know, if that's kind of your worst case scenario for this year, that's that's still a fairly attractive, you know, scenario. Oh, definitely. Um, so Ben, should we, uh, should we pivot and uh, look at some questions? Yeah, I think we should. All right. Well, we've got a couple here kind of under the headline of team troubles, uh, laughing man, <laughs> which, which is really an appropriate Twitter handle handle given this question, um, asks, uh, are they trolling us? <laughs> 
Should we just take that one, Ben? What do you think? Are they trolling us? Uh, if if only, because then we could just ignore them. We could we could mute them or block them and get on with our lives. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm going to jump on to the next one here since that was a quick one. Uh, Rhonda Santos asks, and uh, several rapid fire questions here, Ben, but they're more or less in the same vicinity. So we're going to we're going to allow these multiple questions here. But Rhonda asks, what's the deal with a six and 13 record in one run extra inning games? How does the team with the worst record in the NL have a positive run differential? And I'm, that question came in before there, you know, zero zero is there today. Five weeks ago, would you have taken 15 and 10 after going 10 and 24? Is it worth betting the farm for a third wild card? And can they sell at the deadline? So whole kind of matrix of questions there, but all in the same general area, Ben. What, what would you say? Um, I, I would just say the one run game, you know, extra inning game, that there is a spectrum of those results every year. And this is well within the outer reaches of that. You know, like it just happens. Now with Helsley and Gallegos, does it surprise me? Yes. Um, but, uh, you know, those things tend to happen in terms of, you know, the bad start followed by 15 and 10. Yeah, I mean, you take that. Um, it's just when you're losing in the state of Ohio, you know, even though you're on the road, like that's a problem because those are teams you need to beat. And uh, and so that that's the problem that I have with it. But overall, like, yeah, that's OK. And I think they can sell in the deadline. And, and as we've discussed here earlier, we might very well see it uh, moving on. We have some questions about uh, players and coaches. Um, uh, ben Wheeler. Uh, asks Matt Holiday quitting before even getting started is the perfect canvas for speculation. Please paint away. What's the real reason he didn't join the team, Ben? You know, I I mean, I I don't think we have any special insight on that. And I several of the kind of beat reporters who are there around the team have who have reported on this have all kind of said essentially this to, told really the same story, which is just that. He was interested in the job, kind of got into the job, and and once he really started doing the day to day of it, kind of realized he he wasn't interested in the actual day to day of it, and changed his mind. And I mean, that's you know that makes sense that that happens. So I don't necessarily have you know reason to speculate um, beyond that. Um, I don't know, Ben, if you have any other. Yeah, my my. Uh, thinking on this is that Matt Holiday is a multi-millionaire. <laughs> yeah. So what the heck would he want to be a bench coach for? Right. I, you know, like, and and I love baseball too. But if I were a multi-millionaire who made my millions traveling around playing baseball and being away from my family, right? And I could just be with my family every day and not worry about money, I would probably do that until at least my kids were like, you know, had started each started their professional careers and maybe not yeah. even then. So like, I totally don't blame him for, I, I was more surprised that he was interested enough in the job to initially accept it. <laughs> like, yeah. So like that, that for me, it was like the, the quitting surprised me less than the accepting uh, to begin with. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, like my understanding is the bench coach sometimes has to like make schedules and like do things like that, that are like actual work. And, and you do notice that like a lot of bench coaches are often guys like, you know, Skip Schumacher and, uh, you know, Ali Marmol and guys like that. Yes. And not exactly guys like Matt Holiday, who, you know, would, you know, like one off season signed the largest off season contract that particular off season. So yeah. Yeah. Good, good point, Ben. Um, uh, moving along the last place, uh, asks and that yes, ladies and gentlemen, I believe that is a play on the wallet, uh, but with, or DeWitt with wit or wallet replaced with last place, um, asks how excited is the, Cardinals off day team for Zach Plesak to arrive. Ben? Well, <laughs> uh, I just want to know um, uh, earlier the question, are they trolling us? I just want to note that the last place is clearly trolling us here with a really excellent <laughs> selection of yes. Zach Plesak as exactly the kind of, uh, you know, um, current disaster pitcher who's, you know, on the fringe of being cut by his current team, who seems exactly like who could be a, uh, a deadline day signing by the Cardinals in the event that they don't, in fact, become sellers and, and do become buyers. So um, I would say I'm not at all excited for the perhaps inevitable um, trade for Zach Plesak at the deadline. And yet, having been through this the last couple seasons now, I wouldn't be surprised for Zach Plesak to come in and, you know, turn it around and, you know, post a, you know, 3.95 ERA over the final few months of the season. Yes, it, it would be amazing to see. I, I'm not excited at all. I, I just want to get a pitcher. <laughs> I, I want to get a pitcher who I know is good. Like yeah, and to right. be excited about yeah. that. I, I don't, right. I don't want Dr. Thunder and I'm trying to, to talk myself into it being good. You know, although, like, although diet Dr. Thunder is looking pretty good out of the bullpen. I gotta say. Well, yeah. It, it, so, <laughs> so many pitchers look really good out of the bullpen That's and true. then uh, they have to come out and throw like three or four pitches for five or six innings and everything goes <laughs> uh, down the drain at that point in time. Uh, oh, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, uh, Devant, who of course does our, uh, theme music and is our friend who we sometimes get together and watch games with asks what percentage of games as a Cardinal has O'Neill spent on the injured list? Yeah. And, um, so actually, uh, our good friend Dan, who does our social media, this is really like the entire uh, off-day brain trust kind of getting together on this one here, uh, Ben. I love this. Um, he chimes in. He did a little bit of research on this for us. So we got the whole uh, the whole team on this. So uh, in 2018, Tyler O'Neill had uh, 22 days on the DL. or uh, Sorry, IL. Apologize. Apologize. It's been renamed. Uh, 2019, 41, 2020, zero, but obviously asterisk, uh, 2021, 24, 2022, 63, and uh, 2023, um, it was uh, 34 as this was put together. So, um, you know, it's, I, I would say that's that feels like that's not as many as I would have guessed, Ben. Is that the same for you? Uh, I For me, it was about right. I, I yeah. was actually 
I didn't re- remember that he had spent two months on the injured list last year. I thought it was less. And so yeah. uh, if anything, I have to confess, it was it was maybe a little bit more than I had anticipated. Well, the other thing, too, that is not on here is at least in a couple of those early seasons, there were some um, minor league uh, stints in there as well, I think, too. So I think that kind of factors into just there was some and I forget exactly which of these. I didn't look into which of these seasons he was optioned as well, but like there's a little bit of that as well. So. Um, you know, it's, uh, you know, it, there's just, there's guys who help staying consistently healthy is an issue. And Tyler O'Neill is one of those players. Um, I don't know if anybody's following the Yankees, but our old friend Harrison Bader is, is, is such a player as well. Um, you know, it's just, it's just one of those things, you know, certain players. I mean, some players have like a, a, a single recurring injury, of course, that always comes up and other players just, whether it's the way they play or it's just their particular body injuries just recur throughout their career. And it's just kind of the way it is. So. Yeah. Um, I, the, the thing that blew my mind though, is it's basically a season's worth of, days on the il for his whole career which is pretty wild yeah yeah it's 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 not a small amount so um all right last question here i love this uh michael diver asks two years ago i spent around 125 dollars on a flaherty jersey by the way love the commitment love going all in saying this is a player i'm going to commit to this player i'm going to get the jersey I still love Jack, but I can't help but wonder, should I have bought an Arenado instead? Now, Michael, I don't know, were you listening to the first part of the show when we went through the uh, the, the the zips versus uh, real numbers? Because maybe you're not feeling that anymore. But anyway, um, second part of the question, do any listeners know how to get the jersey I really want, Joaquin Andahar? So we got a two-part question there, Ben. Let's help uh, Mr. Diver out with this. First part. Did he make a mistake with the Flaherty jersey? Should he have bought Arenado? Now we got to go back in time to the moment he bought it. We can't come in. We can't come in now. That's not. That's not fair. What do you, What do you think? Um, I I think he probably made the right decision just because of the the uh, opt outs. Like you just didn't know how that was going to go. So to oh, me, yeah. that's interesting. To me, I would not have bought the Arenado jersey because of the opt-outs. And I, yeah. I should also add, uh, Michael, my brother uh, lives in the Denver area, and Arenado is his favorite player. And so uh, I got him an Arenado jersey uh, right after the trade uh, for him to wear when the Cardinals come to town. Um, and I feel like that would have been the appropriate financial investment with the opt-outs, like the jersey. Now that he has opted in, I think I, I I might consider the jersey though now because you're, you know, you're gonna get your use out of it. So I I might reconsider uh, yeah. now that you know he's gonna be here. Now I'm gonna say there are multiple philosophies on the the name jersey right people approach this in different ways and and i'm going to say that my philosophy on this has evolved ben as i have aged and i will tell you that early on i was extremely conservative and my 
greatest fear was that I would purchase a, a name jersey and then that player would be traded or you know something like that would happen and and then i would have this humiliating experience of you know now i have the jersey of this player who you know left the team or etc cetera, etc cetera, right so but the problem is you're kind of like paralyzed with fear then right because how do you know right how many people yes. bought albert pujols jerseys during you know the you know what 10 years of excellence to start his career and then you know and then he left the team right and then i remember going to like spring training and seeing people like turning the number fives into dollar signs and stuff right yeah and it's like god what kind of nut jobs are these folks right what are they what, what kind of mental shit are they going through right now so i don't know that that's really the right way to go to live your life so the other folks I see are, of course, the people that like show up on opening day with the jersey, like the people that showed up with the Tino Martinez jersey is what I'm saying, Ben, right? Yeah. Those yeah. people, right? And I used to look yeah. at those people and say, look at this joker, right? Like, uh, because obviously those those fools, like, you know, they wore that three times and it was like, oh, man, like this, this is not working out. But... In my older age, I feel like, you know what, like good, good on them. They, you know, they, they went forth with like a, a spirit of, you know, anything can happen and positivity. And so I feel like that, you know, either way, I guess is what I'm saying. Like, you know, just embrace the Jersey, either direction you want to go. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I, I am, uh, I have grown to appreciate it more and, uh, and with age, uh, for me, I just, I don't spend money on those things because I'm just yeah. like, eh, I can just wear a t-shirt and it should also be said. I, I have, uh, an 82 Willie McGee. I have an 87 Aussie Smith. Right. I have an actual Rawlings white Aussie Smith. I have, mm -hmm two Ozzie Smith BP jerseys, one Willie McGee BP jersey, a gray Gibson from 67 because I was like, well, I'm the site manager for Viva Alberto, so I should probably have one of these. And uh, mm -hmm. and then Pujols, okay? Mm -hmm. And so it, not that I was scarred from Pujols or anything like that. It was just kind of like, like that was the point where I was just kind of like, you know, uh, I'm just, I'm okay. I have a very, oh, I've also have Stan Musial. I've got, you know, the, the classic red piping home, uh, Stan Musial. And, and so I have more than I could ever wear on a trip to St. Louis. I have them in plastic in my closet and I have basically pretty much reached the, the ceiling. Like, I'm just kind of like, ah, I, I don't need, you know, I don't need any more player specific stuff. And if I'm being frank, uh, my wife has imposed a one out one in t-shirt rule. So I can't <laughs> even get a t-shirt anymore. So yeah. uh, I I don't even have entertained these thoughts anymore. I'm just like, ah, eh, nope, not for me. I'm, <laughs> I'm, yeah. I'm tapped out here. I've, I have hit my limit. 
Yeah, I, you know, I, I personally don't buy a whole lot of like name on jerseys. I did get a, a Pujols uh, when he returned to the team. I wanted to get one of those. Here's my other story. You remember my whole thing about how uh, I don't want to be embarrassed by my jerseys, right? A uh, couple years ago, I, you know this story. Um, I got like a, a, a free NFL jersey and I'm a Packers fan. So I was like, all right, I'll get an Aaron Rodgers jersey. And then like literally the week after I ordered it, he uh, went on a podcast and started talking about COVID. <laughs> so like, <laughs> I've, uh, and, and, you know, continued to uh, just start, you know, sharing his opinion on things uh, since then. So uh, I've never worn that Aaron Rodgers jersey <laughs> because he, he kind of turned out to be a, you know, sort of a different uh, type of individual than I thought he was at the time I got it. And I just didn't really want to invite conversations uh, with said, said jersey. So um, anyway, if anybody wants one, I'll cut you a deal on it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Second part of Mr. Diver's question. Do any listeners how to get the jersey he really wants a Joaquin Andahar? Ben, you got any sources? I don't um, because I assume he wants the V-neck, right? Probably. And so my, my initial reaction was like, well, you could just make it. But then I was like, but it wouldn't be the era specific jersey. And you run into that problem. And I'm, yeah. I have really tried to get uh, less... Uh, I, I'm very specific about jerseys. Like you, it has to be era specific. You can't, you know, there's, there are all these rules to it in my brain and I have tried to let that go. Um, but like in this particular instance, I feel like that would be what, what Michael would want. And I don't know yeah. if they have ever even made one of those like at Mitchell and Ness or anything like that. Yeah. I, I know what you mean. And Right, because you can do the like create a jersey thing, but it's typically you can only do it with like the current jersey. And so you'll see people who do it. So you'll see someone who will do like the current year jersey with like, you know, an Ankeel or a Musial or something. And I mean, it's like, yeah, you can do that. But like, I was like, oh, that's nice, you know, Stan Musial jersey with the Nike swoosh on it or whatever, right? Like, yeah. It's just it, like, I mean, I, that's of course, you know, again, that's cool. Like if you want to wear that, that's, that's fine. But I know what you mean. Like I personally have always wanted like a 67 Kurt Flood jersey with like the cap sleeves, yeah. like that would be cool. And, and, but all of those, the, the actual like, like true like vintage look ones they only make like player specific ones so like they've made like a bob gibson or they yes. made like certain players but um they don't make all the players and for some reason major league baseball has never made a kurt flood uh replica jersey i can't quite figure out <laughs> why they haven't done that um, but uh so so yeah i i don't know and, and if joaquin andahar is not a player that i mean he's not quite like maybe that like you know, it, they really do. You really do kind of have to get up to that like god tier player to to make, you know, for them to yeah. like make the 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 true replicas. And I think maybe Andahar is just not quite there. So yeah, I don't know. Um, I, I don't know that I have a, a source for him on the, the true replica. So, um, but uh, anyway, good questions, and I, I hope he I hope he finds that jersey. So. All right, Ben. Um, I think we spent a lot of time. If, if we get more, we could just do a whole Jersey, uh, you know, episode yes. next time. And honestly, if the team uh, goes like, uh, you know, uh, you know, two and six again or whatever, uh, please just ask us more Jersey questions. <laughs> but uh, Ben, uh, over this next week, uh, what on earth are you going to be looking for? 
Uh, I am going to look at Matthew Liberatore's fastball velocity, uh, you know, because legs feed the wolf, and it didn't quite look as good uh, in his last start against the Rangers. So uh, I'm going to be paying too much attention to that, uh, and uh, that will be uh, the top of my list for what I'm looking for uh, in the days ahead. All right. Um, and I'm going to be um, looking at the um, distance between um, balls that Jordan Walker hits and the ground and hoping for any distance at all. Um, obviously, he um, got some distance between a ball and the ground uh, the other day and, and crushed a home run. Um, he, my gosh, he hits the ball so hard. And it's, it, what's crazy is so many of his ground balls go through for hits because he just blisters it. So, like, you know, if, if he hits it even a couple feet from where a fielder is standing, it's, it's going through. But, man, he just needs to get some balls in the air. So I just – every time he hits one, I'm just, just hoping to see, you know, any loft on it at all because if he just starts getting, you know, getting some balls in the air, I think he is just going to skyrocket in terms of his, his production. So that's, that's what I'm going to be looking for. Um, and lastly, Ben, do you have an off-day recommendation for folks? I do. Uh, the athletic, uh, Zach Buchanan, uh, put together MLB prospect Intel scouts on Tinkens, jet Williams and more miners info. And the, uh, the write up on Tinkens is about as good as you're going to see for a 20 year old starter in high a, and I encourage folks to read it. All right. And I'm going to recommend uh, a piece that uh, Bernie Miklas wrote called the, uh, the Blackberry Cardinals. Um, just basically about the Cardinals um, just kind of uh, just analytics and just everything they do essentially not moving forward and likening them to the way the, the Blackberry, um, you know, kind of uh, was an early mover and then didn't innovate and got left behind. Um, I've, I think multiple times on this show, I've recommended two books, uh, The Cardinal Way by Howard Megdahl, and uh, then more recently, uh, Winning Fixes Everything by Evan Drellick. I would highly recommend those two books, um, you know, really, uh, because The Cardinal Way is the definitive book on the, um, I think, the uh, the early kind of analytical advancements by the Cardinals when Lunau came in and they really did the smart stuff. And, and honestly, Winning Fixes Everything, which is, of course, about Lunau and the Astros, really tells you about the end of that era when Lunau left and that brain drain happened at the Cardinals. And it kind of um, really paints the picture of sort of the end of that and when that all left. And, and frankly, nothing has ever come in to replace it. So those two books will give you a real full painting of that. But but Bernie's piece um, is much shorter and it actually really kind of just summarizes exactly what happened. So um, it's it's a great kind of quick read that I think just does a great job of summing up a lot of what has led to sort of where the organization is at right now. So uh, Ben, anything else before we uh, wrap it up? No, I don't think so. Uh, everyone, uh, enjoy. I hope you're enjoying your break, your respite, if you will, from Cardinals baseball. And uh, even if you're being forced to think about it by listening to our podcast, and hopefully they give us a, a little something to cheer about in the weeks ahead. They can't lose today. If you're listening to this on the off day, they cannot lose today. 
So we've got that going for us today. So anyway, um, yeah, thank you, everybody, for listening. We will be with you again in one week on the next Cardinals Offing. Go Cardinals!